A warm welcome to the Hertie School. Hertie School. The Hertie School. The Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. Understand today, shape tomorrow. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School in Berlin. Okay, so I think we can now uh, begin. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, my name is Mark Dawson. Uh, let me welcome you on behalf of the Hertie School and um, on behalf of the Jack Delore Centre at the Hertie School to this event today on the German Constitutional Courts. Is it a threat to European uh, unity? And um, I'm relatively briefly going to hand over to Toon Yuen, who will moderate today's uh, event. But maybe I can just say a few words about sort of what prompted us um, to organize this event today in the first place. And um, personally, I've been living and working in Germany now for around eight years as a EU lawyer, someone, an academic working on EU law. And actually, for most of that time, I felt like I could relatively safely um, ignore the German constitutional courts and focus on what was happening in Luxembourg, what was happening at the European level, leave the German Constitutional Court maybe to, you know, German law scholars to deal with um, and to write commentaries about and that sort of thing. But I think sort of what has been brought home this year, not just to me, but to others, is kind of the increasing importance of the German Constitutional Courts as a player in European law and as a player in European politics too. So once, uh, I think maybe in European law scholarship more generally, people thought of the German Constitutional Courts as an important source of certain constitutional ideas. So it's been well known, for example, that certain doctrines of the court like subsidiarity or proportionality have had a lot of influence on European law more broadly. There was even, for those of you who might have followed that, a recent symposium of our Fassel's blog that talked about German legal hegemony. So the way in which certain German legal concepts might become overly powerful within the European legal space. I think, though, it's clear now that the influence of the court is more than just about the spread of ideas. So with the decision of the court that we'll talk about in a lot more detail today in PSPP and that was handed down in early May of this year, the federal constitutional court did something much more fundamental. It challenged, actually, two of the most central non-majoritarian institutions in the EU, the European Central Bank and the European Court of Justice, in quite a fundamental way. Now, there was a lot of very immediate commentary that was commenting on this judgment, most of it very critical in nature. I think our idea though in this event was, given that we're now sort of six months on from the judgments, how do we reflect on the meaning of the challenge that the German Constitutional Court laid down in that decision? And also how can we put that decision in the context of the more broader relationship between the German Constitutional Court and the European Union. Is this court really a threat to integration? Is it an act, a kind of hostile actor within the European legal and political space? Or is it actually a court who perhaps is doing something constructive, doing something necessary in the context of the European legal order? And we also wanted to put the German Constitutional Court in a bit of a comparative perspective. So discuss its jurisprudence, both with people's with German scholars but also with scholars who are from outside the German context and who could compare a little bit the activities of the German court with other constitutional courts in Europe. So I'm very happy um, that we have such a great panel with us today and Tu is going to introduce them in a moment. 
I'm actually now going to switch hats from the chair to one of the panelists. And thank you again on behalf of the Artist School for joining us. And thank you also to two um, for agreeing to moderate our event today. Thank you, Mark. And um, also for me, um, welcome to our audience. Um, before I move to the more organizational part, um, let me quickly introduce our really, really wonderful panel for today. Um, so one of the panelists is Teresa Violante. And she is currently a research fellow at the Friedrich Alexander University in Erlangen, Nuremberg, and also a visiting research fellow at the Max Planck Institute in Heidelberg. And her research focuses um, on the role of constitutional courts in contemporary democracies. Um, we also have Professor Franz Meyer with us, who is the chair of public law, European law, and public international competitive law and law and politics at the University of Bielefeld. And he was a counsel to the German parliament and the federal government for, for numerous cases at the um, German constitutional court and also testified, in fact, in the German parliament on the PSVP decision this year. So I think it's great that um, you, you've joined us today. Um, Anna Bobic um, is a post-director researcher here at the Hertie School in the Jack Law Center, and she works um, in particular on questions of accountability in EU economic governance. And then, of course, Matt Dawson, who um, you can now not see anymore, is a professor of European law at the Hertie School as well. So it's a very excellent panel, and I'm very much looking forward to the discussion. On, on, on this intriguing question. Um, the way we, we have set up this event is that uh, the discussion will be split in four rounds um, and then it will be followed by a Q&A session. So the four rounds, the first round will be on the concept of primacy of EU law. The second one will be on sort of the usefulness and dangers of the ultra-virus um, doctrine. Um, the third one will be on the implications of the uh, court's judgment, so the ECP judgment on the um, economic and monetary union in the EU. And then the last session will be on the principle of proportionality. Each of the sessions will last about 15 minutes, which means that um, each of the speakers will have around five minutes. Um, and since we're a bit short on time, um, I apologize in advance if I have to cut you off after five minutes. Um, and then if we are on time, that leaves us about 25 minutes, I think, um, for questions answers um, by the audience in the end. If you do have any questions, please just type them in, in the chat. Um, if it is for a particular speaker, of course, mention that. Otherwise, um, we will just post it to the panel in general. So um, without further ado, I think um, let's start perhaps immediately with the question of um, primacy of EU law. Um, so a lot of critiques of, on the judgment was um, that it challenges the primacy of EU law, undermines the primacy of EU law, which is of course this main principle underlying um, the relationship between national courts and the European court. So perhaps what I would like to ask you is, what are your perspectives on the principle of primacy of EU law in general within the EU legal order? And how do you think the, the judgment by the court in May has affected or not affected this, um, this principle? And perhaps you could also sort of reflect on how this judgment might have an impact on the principle of primacy of EU law in other member states. So not just in Germany, but perhaps in particular member states where we um, see a bit where we see um, some undermining of the rule of law. So can this be used, for example, in Poland and Hungary to further undermine um, primacy of EU law? Um, and I think I will give the floor to you first, Teresa, if that's okay. And then you have five minutes. 
Thank you. Uh, can you hear me? Okay. So, um, hello, thank you. I would like to begin by uh, thanking this uh, very kind invitation to the Hardy School and to the Jacques Delors Center, and also to um, say hello to my co-panelists, uh, to the other speakers. Uh, when we talking about the primacy is perhaps one of the most difficult topics uh, within EU law. I'm not a EU lawyer, I'm a constitutional lawyer. And uh, as Mark mentioned, I intend to bring here not only the, the perspective of national constitutional courts, but most importantly, of other constitutional courts. We already have with us friends who will uh, pr prominently uh, focus and um, uh, speak about the German court, but uh, I would like to draw the, the, the broader picture to the probable influence and um, ex external synergies of this ruling uh, it, with regards to other constitutional courts, uh, who, which are also strong uh, constitutional courts that have been created uh, in the aftermath of authoritarian periods, just like the federal constitutional court. So, as I was saying, a supremacy, um, it's perhaps the most difficult topic, or at least one of the most difficult topics within EU law. And there's always two sides to the story. Either we look at it from the perspective of the ECJ in the Eurocentric perspective, and then we have a picture of unconditional uh, primacy and absolute precedence of EU law over national law, be it constitutional or uh, cons domestic constitutional law. But then we have the other side of the story, which is equally important, which is the side of, uh, of the domestic constitutional law. And we only have three cases in Europe where uh, national constitutions specifically address the topic of primacy. We know the cases of uh, Ireland and the Netherlands. There's also the case of Portugal that uh, accepts easily primacy over national constitutional law, safeguarding the fundamental principles of the democratic state. And in, in the other cases, the constitutions are silent, but several national courts both uh, uh, Supreme Courts and uh, Constitutional Courts, although they have uh, progressively come to accept primacy, um, they accepted most of them primacy with reservations. And this brings us to um, uh, empirically conflicting, conflicting claims to final authority. And um, uh, in, in that regard, um, this is the story of primacy, a two-sided story. And it's inherent to the to, to the nature of um, EU law, and of course, there's also the possibility of conflicts. Uh, we've had them in the past, perhaps never one as explosive as this one, but it's inherent in in the EU law since the EU is not a federal state. And uh, I wouldn't be uh, too quick to um, draw on the possible influences of the PSPP judgment with regards to uh, constitutional courts from um, those more problematic member states. I think it's unfair to place a constitutional court, a functional constitutional court from a functional constitutional democracy in such a position where it has to uh, balance the effects of its decisions in situations of pseudo-constitutionalism or facade constitutionalism. And, uh, I don't even think that uh, we can put uh, um, the, the topics on the same uh, on the same scales of the of the balance. But I, I am more interested on the possible influence that this uh, judgment can have 
in other constitutional courts, in functioning constitutional courts. And um, I, I drew a parallelism. And the, the minute I, I read the judgment and I read the initial commentaries, I thought of a comparison with the attitude that the Portuguese constitutional court developed during the austerity case law. And during that, that, that case law, if you are uh, well reminded, the Portuguese court did not initiate any dialogue with, uh, with the EPJ, but rather immunized um, austerity legislation from the influence of EU law. It, it adjudicated all the cases on the basis that they were purely national legislation and then um, uh, also produced uh, significant rulings that uh, produced uh, strong impacts at the level of the Economic and Monetary Union. And I'm not so sure if the Portuguese Constitutional Court at that time had uh, developed uh, a thorough doctrinal toolbox, like the one that now has been um, finalized, the circle had been finalized by the um, German Constitutional Court, if it had uh, uh, those kinds of tools, if it had opted for another uh, strategy in that regard. So we know that other constitutional courts also face um, the def democratic deficiencies of EU in their uh, jurisdictions. So they also may be prompted to defy uh, DCJ in other cases. Thank you, Teresa. Sorry. Interesting. Anna, would you like to follow up yeah. with your perspective? Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very happy that, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for uh, to for uh, the, moderation, the moderation and to uh, Teresa and Franz for joining us and everyone in the audience. Um, I'm very happy that, too, that Teresa gave us uh, the perspective of national constitutional courts and how it how this judgment can be perceived in the context of primacy. And I would like to start uh, again with the definition of primacy, but in a more, I don't want to say that I want to, that it's an EU definition or a national definition of it. I think that uh, what I want to emphasize in my, in my short contribution on this is, in fact, the contested nature of primacy as the permanent condition of what we currently see in EU constitutionalism. And here I want to really broadly define EU constitutionalism as one that includes both EU treaties, so contributions from the EU constitution, but as well from national constitutions. So in, 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 in this sense, it means that the EU constitutionalism more broadly understood includes both those levels. And in this sense, uh, primacy in, in agreement with, with Teresa does not uh, in fact mean a direct hierarchical uh, positioning of EU law above national constitutions. And uh, as she also uh, very importantly underlined many uh, national uh, constitutional courts have indeed placed reservations on such a uh, such a simple hierarchical understanding of primacy. So rather, uh, in my understanding, the the way that primacy operates uh, in EU law and in in the interaction between EU and national constitutions is the relationship of heterarchy. Um, and to give you a bit more uh, context of this, heterarchy actually means not only that all the sources of constitutional authority in the EU are placed on a ran in a random position, but rather that at different points in time, they take priority. And when we look at these developments and these judicial and constitutional interactions over time, we can see the incremental 
development of EU constitution more broadly. So I really want to emphasize the incremental development, the dynamic nature of EU constitutionalism. And that is, of course, uh, a rather different and, and, and uh, in some ways, um, a non-traditional understanding of constitutionalism. And this is why national constitutions uh, often have uh, an issue with accepting this. But let's not forget that the Court of Justice itself would also very much prefer to live in the world of, uh, you know, um, uncontested primacy that acts as a, in, in a hierarchical manner. Uh, and so to, to emphasize what I want to say about the, the effect of the Weiss judgment, the PSPP judgment of the German court. Um, so in my understanding, this does not really change uh, the position of primacy as it was. It doesn't really change the structural relationship between national constitutions and EU constitutional law, uh, but rather, in my view, forms a part of this permanent contestation loop that the EU and national levels are, are permanently engaged with. And so, uh, in my understanding, the the way that uh, that national constitutional courts use uh, and apply primacy in their in their national law, uh, the German decision in that sense follow this follows this regular pattern. Um, what I want to emphasize in the in relation to Poland and Hungary uh, 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 and the possible influence on other national constitutional courts of this judgment is to say that the contestation of primacy always needs to happen within the scope of Article 2 of the treaty, right? So the concept of the rule of law is something that cannot be contested. And in my view, the German court has not done so, uh, despite the fact that it has decided not to apply uh, the Court of Justice's judgment. So I would like to separate what is going on in Hungary and Poland, where judicial independence has effectively been taken away from uh, from national courts by the executive. And they, in my view, no longer even take part in this contestation of primacy and uh, and the incremental development of EU law. Uh, thank you. I think I'm within my time. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Thank you. And I think um, I will give the word immediately to, to you, Franz. Well, thank you very much. And thank you, first of all, for in inviting me to this panel. It's still a fascinating subject, although um, the, the number of uh, um, writings and analysis uh, after May 5th has been overwhelming. I put that together for an article the other day, and that was like a monster footnote of almost a page. And alone on, on one of the blog uh, sites, you had like 30 uh, um, uh, articles um, um, within four weeks. So it's really a fascinating subject, but it's a good idea uh, to to talk about this, uh, you know, a little bit later than all the others. And um, so again, thanks for inviting me. Well, on primacy, actually, I don't think that the case is about primacy. I don't think that PSPP is really about primacy. Of course, primacy is a very important topic um, in the context of federalist uh, federalism. Um, uh, it's it's also always something that comes up in the context of multi-level systems, but it's 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 not crucial. It's not by definition that you need a rule of primacy in a in the context of a multi-level system. There are numerous federal systems that uh, get along without this rule of conflict, which just shape the power, the, the spheres of power and competence in a way that they don't overlap. That there is no conflict, so you can you can get along without a primacy principle. Um, in the European context, uh, as everybody knows, it's something that's been carved out by the ECJ um, uh, judge-made law. Um, I believe it's a lot about legal unity, uh, and from that perspective, it's it's important. Uh, it's about fairness. It's about reciprocity. It's about the idea that 
it's not okay if some member states, if one member states, although they subscribe to the treaties, later on say, well, actually, everybody's bound, but we are not because we don't accept primacy on this or that. Now, the legal problem is obviously that uh, from the outset, uh, there, there were basically two versions of, of primacy. There was the EU law version as uh, um, uh, laid down in the famous Costa NL case and later in, in Internationale Handelsgesellschaft in 1970 in a very brutal way, uh, basically saying we don't care what you what you um, invoke, even if it's, if it's the national constitution, they say in International Handelsgesellschaft, uh, EU law must prevail. And the second version of primacy, uh, obviously, is stemming from the, the realm of the domestic constitutional sphere, and typically from a, a domestic constitutional court, obviously would be more nuanced and would say, well, maybe primacy is okay on infra-constitutional uh, domestic law, but when it comes to the constitution, we have to talk. Now, to make a long story start, my reading is that uh, nowadays, in 2020, um, the result of the two different narratives is more or less the same. Both the EU law version and, let me take the German constitutional law version of primacy of EU law has basically more or less the same message. EU law has primacy over even constitutional law, um, exception uh, national constitutional identity. That's something that ECJ seems to have accepted, if you remember cases like Sein Wittgenstein. And, and the German Constitutional Court did say this uh, in this European arrest warrant case in December 2015. They accept primacy even when it comes to domestic constitutional law. Now, let me also state, because that was something that uh, this is something that is always around there, I believe primacy is not necessarily hierarchical. Primacy is not supremacy, and you can make a um, uh, you can say a lot about the, the comparison, for example, uh, with with the Spanish constitutional debate here, where we have primacia versus supremacia, and in German it's Anwendungsvorrang and Geltungsvorrang. So you have different concepts of primacy, and the EU law primacy is better compared to some kind of priority rules at a traffic intersection. You know, just who has priority? It's nothing that is necessar necessarily hierarchical. Um, I believe that ultravirus is not a primacy issue because the entire thing is about uh, is it lawful or not. If there is the power and the competence of the EU, the German Constitutional Court says, then we can talk about primacy. Then they accept primacy to a large extent. But here they say it's not even EU law. And thus, there is not even the question of primacy. So the question here is rather on the final word of interpretation of, of law. It's about the ultimate arbiter, the ultimate umpire on legality. And it's about who prevails in institutional terms. And that's not primacy in the sense of norm hierarchy. That's just a different topic. It's about institutional hierarchy. And the German Constitution Court seems to expect a relationship at equal footing. They want to talk to the ECJ basically at the same level. I don't really see them uh, uh, aspiring to some kind of hierarchical position higher than the ECJ. I'm not really sure what the ECJ is, uh, is heading for here. There are cases where the ECJ seems to accept that national courts have the final say. And just briefly on this aspect, what about um, um, this, the, the impact of this ruling uh, on other member states' uh, perspective on primacy? Well, obviously, this is the issue of Poland and Hungary, and, and especially Poland, uh, their, their um, 
euphoric reaction. Well, look, even the Germans do it. They say we must, we were not obliged to respect EU law obligations. Um, the German judges did say something to correct this misinterpretation and clearly said that uh, the, 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 the Polish uh, reaction was mistaken. And it's true that actually, if you look closer, what the German court wants is more ECJ control. And that's not really what the, the, the Polish government would like to have. Um, but still, there's a uh, potential for misunderstanding. And that's, I still believe it's a problem. And that's one of the reasons why I don't like this decision and why I think it's really unfortunate. Thanks. Thank you, Franz. And um, you already mentioned that that the, the sorry that the court decision was um, about ultravirus, and that in fact the German court declared an act of an EU institution to be ultravirus. Um, so in this context, I, th I would like to ask you, um, what are your views? And again, it's sort of two different two different parts of this question. And um, what are your views on this concept of ultravirus in general? When it comes to the division of powers in the EU, um, is it useful or not? And then secondly, what is your evaluation when it comes to the use of the ultravirus doctrine by a powerful court such as the German Bundesverfassungsgericht? So is it a powerful doctrine and is it perhaps dangerous if a powerful doctrine is being used by a very powerful court? Or is it again or being very exaggerated actually in the debate? Um, and perhaps Anna? Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, so I, let me start by saying first, very clearly, I don't think that ultravirus review by national courts is a problem. Uh, I think that this um, as in the abstract. So I'm going to start with the abstract uh, to answer your question, the first question. So um, as I think uh, all of us have uh, pretty much agreed that primacy is really not a hierarchical tool, uh, the way that the division of competences between the EU and the national level works, to my mind, ultravirus is a useful tool um, and it has been established uh, throughout the, the decades of European integration, uh, regardless of the fact that the Court of Justice has said for itself in Fotofrost, this is back in 1985, that it has the final words to review the legality of EU law. Uh, equally, of course, the national constitutional courts have reserved this right for themselves uh, to review the compliance of such uh, of EU action with their national constitutions. Now, of course, uh, this, this brings us to clashes in interpretation as is visible in, in, in the PSPP German decision. Um, but I would like to take a, a little bit of a different view on this to really emphasize that, for example, in academic writing uh, throughout, not just in relation to this judgment, of, uh, but in relation to different areas of EU law, the Court of Justice has regularly been criticized for really taking a lax approach in reviewing EU legislation and controlling the competences uh, as, as they are used by the EU institutions. And in that sense, I think that my view is that the ultravirus review is a useful tool for a kind of a mutual accountability mechanism between uh, the Court of Justice and national constitutional courts. And let me take the example, of, not of what is happening now, but the general principles of EU law. Again, judge-made law uh, by the Court of Justice, most, uh, most famously the Court of Justice in 2005, if I'm not mistaken, in the Mangold decision said general principle, at least of non-discrimination on grounds of age, is applicable in horizontal situations between um, private parties, something that the treaties or the framework directive on non-discrimination never allowed for. And this particular judgment has first not only triggered 
the ultra-virus standard for review uh, in the Honeywell decision of the German court. So he has given impetus for national courts to develop their ultra-virus standards. And then in Denmark, we've seen the Supreme Court saying, well, this is simply not something that uh, our legislator uh, has given democratic legitimation for, and we find this ultra-virus. But I think that it's very important to emphasize that in this area, for example, the Advocates General of the Court of Justice, academic uh, community has consistently criticized the Court of Justice. And in that sense, I think that ultra-virus is a useful tool. And to come to the German decision in particular, I think that regardless of the fact that whether we find this decision conceptually flawed uh, or the reasoning airtight, it has, as Franz uh, uh, emphasized, it, uh, started such a vast debate on these issues that we are now uh, debating such nuanced issues of ECB accountability, accountability in the EMU, and I think that the fact that now we are having this enormous academic and constitutional discussion is really one of the very important contributions of ultra-virus review. So I would end with that. Thank you. Thank you. Teresa, would you like to follow up? Yes. Um, I basically agree with what uh, Anna has just explained us. Um, I think it, it doesn't come uh, with primacy. Doesn't doesn't necessarily come the rule that um, uh, national constitutions uh, lose the competence to uh, supervise if the competences that they have transferred to the supranational level uh, have been overreached or not. So I, as you probably have guessed by now, I I think that. Uh, national constitutions, and especially national constitutional courts, can play a very productive role in the uh, EU constitutional democracy. And as such, ultra-virus review is a very important tool, in my opinion, to preserve that role that the national constitutional courts can be uh, called to play at the supranational level. And uh, here I draw um, especially on the works by Ian Komarek, um, who has been uh, uh, very keen on explaining that there is an asymmetry at the uh, EU level between the protection and representation of uh, individual autonomy and political autonomy, and um, uh, most to the detriment of uh, uh, welfare rights and, and social rights and to the benefit of uh, economic liberties. And in that regard, uh, tools such as ultra-virus can be, um, are very useful to allow for uh, national constitutional courts to step in and to sanction, as the example that Anne has just uh, uh, reminded us of in, in Denmark, to sanction overreach by EU uh, institutions, uh, namely and perhaps especially uh, over situations of overreach by the ECJ. Thank you, Teresa. Um, Frank, what is your view? Well, thank you. My view is slightly different. I would really insist that ultravirus is a problem. It's a problem because it's about competing claims of authority. And that's always a problem in the legal system. You know, I, I, I've been working on this topic for the last 25 years or so. And I, I wrote a book uh, comparing the ultra-virus conflict doctrine issue in the EU context with a similar uh, situation in uh, the American Union in the 19th uh, century, where you basically have state Supreme Courts arguing 
against the US Supreme Court. And it's it's the same story all over. You seem to, you know, it really sounds a lot like Paul Kirchhoff uh, talking in the 19th century cases stemming from Virginia and other state Supreme Courts. And there the competing claims of authority, it ended up in the civil war and that settled it once and for all. Now I'm not saying that this is gonna end in a civil war because I think we're already beyond in a way the situation. We have already reached a point of no return by entering uh, the monetary union. Um, but just to say, clearly say, uh, competing claims of authority um, are a, a problem, obviously, unless they are really foreseen by the treaties. And the standard narrative here is that the treaties Article 19 of the Treaty in European Union clearly attribute competence, control, the control of the powers and competences of institutions of the EU to the ECJ. That's the Constitutional Court of the EU. And there cannot be another way if there's to be legal unity and coherence. And that's particularly true if competence, which I believe for a native speaker is a strange word anyway. I always understood that uh, the English native speakers prefer to speak of powers uh, and, and competence is rather about expertise. So it's a very artificial kind of, you know, it's clearly the German competence uh, put into e EU English. Now, but if, if competence is understood in the broad sense of legality, and not powers or competence in the policy in the sense of a policy field for example the eu must not regulate um say um election law for domestic general elections you know but if you argue and i guess this is an, an argument you can make that you never have a competence a, a power uh, to to set illegal acts there is no legal title for illegality and if you frame competence like this um, ultra vires is basically a complete review of legality, and this can't work. Now, on the other hand, I would be prepared to accept uh, the argument that the threat um, uh, of domestic uh, constitutional and high courts to engage in ultra vires control did ha have some kind of stabilizing effect or some kind of chilling effect for the European level. But I believe that now that they dropped the bomb, they destroyed this constructive ambiguity. And the error here was that they tried to decide a question that should have left undecided and they tried to win. Now, what's the way out? I believe that there must be a treaty infringement procedure here, um, uh, simply to give the EU side um, uh, the chance to carve out what could be a legitimate ultra-virus uh, theory. Because after all, there, there is some room for ultra vires in the European construct. Imagine um, a, a Polish, uh, you know, an European Union dominated by uh, Poland or Hungary of the present authoritarian kind with respective majorities in the European Court of Justice. Um, an ECJ majority just widely abusing the powers of the ECJ in this kind of authoritarian spirit. And if you think that's unthinkable, you know, that's what we thought of the American Union as well. And then Trump came along. And in this kind of obvious cases, I believe there should be a defense. So again, I believe that a treaty infringement procedure against Germany because of the PCP case could be the, the, the possibility to carve something out. It reminds me a little bit of the Silfit decision. You know, Silfit, the ECJ decision of, of the European Court of Justice, was a response to the French Conseil d'État arguing that there are situations of acte clair where they don't have to submit 
um, uh, questions to the European Court of Justice. And the European Court of Justice said, well, that's true. There may be Acte Claire, but you know, Acte Claire, it's this and this and this and this precondition. And, and the standard was much stricter than what the Conseil d'Etat seems to suggest. So I believe that could be a, um, a way forward to have the ECJ version of an ultra virus doctrine. And just to say that, because that's always out there as well, an additional court, you know, a competence court or what have you, is just a no starter to begin with because it would only shift the problem to another institution. It will always be possible to say, well, then this institution is ultra virus. And again, looking back at, at the last 150 years of constitutional history in uh, non unitary systems, and in particular the, the American Union. There, they had the same idea as well. In the 19th century, it came up again in the 20th century, each and every time when they were unhappy with the Supreme Court, somebody came and, and said, well, we need a competence court, there's a court of the union or so. And the same here, every couple of years, typically a German constitutional court judge, I mean, basically, I think it's, it's been four or five of them who regularly come up and say, we would actually like to have a, a, a competenzgericht or something like that. It just wouldn't work. Thank you, Franz. Well, thank you very much for um, the very interesting perspectives on this. I think there were a bit of uh, different views. Um, in light of the time, I won't um, say much more on this, but would welcome Mark Dawson back to the panel. Um, we can only be four, unfortunately, so Anna has left us um, for a bit and Mark is back. And um, the next question that we have is um, has been touched upon. So Anna mentioned it um, that the, the case was, of course, also about the accountability of, of the European Central Bank and, and um, the competences of the ECB and the accountability in the EMU. And I know that, Mark, you and Anna have had um, a rather positive view, I think, on, on the PSP judgment in terms of um, what it could, what kind of effect it could have on the EMU and its future. Um, so perhaps you could start um, in this round, um, which is more about how do you assess um, the PSP judgment in light of the EMU and, and the development in the EMU in the future? Yeah, thank you. Um, I've really enjoyed this discussion and I've felt awful, you know, left out. I want to sort of jump in. Um, but now what I really like about the PSPP judgment is it, it really has it all, right? So it has these sort of big discussions about principles, you know, proportionality, ultra-virus, primacy. It has this sort of conflict between two major courts, but it also has this sort of real policy importance. Um, and I think it's sort of really important to sort of discuss that aspect of it. And what I also think is really great about this judgment is people sort of mobilize for it and against it in all of these strange configurations, right? So you have kind of the traditional EU law community who are rather hostile to the judgment for particular reasons, but then you have a whole parallel discussion among economists, political scientists that basically divide along completely different lines in terms of what the judgment means for EMU, EMU and the future of EMU. Um, and this is maybe a little bit also more what's motivating my and more positive reaction to the judgment maybe than others. At the same time though, I think sort of looking at the impact of the judgment on, on EMU, you would come to a very different conclusion if you talked about this when the judgment was issued than you would today. And um, so when the judgment was issued, it was actually issued with a two month delay and um, where the judges sort of reflected on, well, can we really do this? Because we'd be dropping this bomb, as Franz put it, in the middle of the COVID-19 
pandemic, the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. So really what the court did was particularly audacious, of course, um, because it was challenging the one actor who at that time really had the capacity to do something about the COVID pandemic, which is the European Central Bank. And it was potentially undermining kind of one of the core tools to challenge and the COVID pandemic, which is the PEPP um, program of the European Central Bank. However, I think if you sort of move things on by six months, ironically, and I think by no design of the judges themselves, they actually did something very positive for EMU, which is they opened the pathway to a political response um, to, to, the, to, the, to, to the COVID crisis that maybe just wouldn't have been possible or the political coordinates would have been very different had the PSP judgments not taken place. So what are they saying in the PSP judgment about EMU? Well, to put it in a very simplified way, I think a large part of what they're saying is there are limits to what the ECB can do in the fiscal field. If the ECB wants to do, um, or if the EU, sorry, wants to do fiscal policy, it can no longer always do fiscal policy by stealth. It can't do it by hiding behind a non-majoritarian institution who produces particular fiscal policies through its monetary policy mandates. If it wants to do fiscal policy, it has to do this explicitly. It has to create um, fiscal devices and it has to make the public case for why some kind of fiscal sharing or fiscal solidarity is actually needed in the European Union. So there was a long taboo in this country in particular about debt sharing, particularly any kind of debt sharing that wasn't linked to conditionality. Ironically, that was a view that also seems to be held by many of the judges of the German Constitutional Court. But it's a great irony that this court, who is so wary of this kind of debt sharing, by placing limitations on what the ECB can do within the fiscal field, it actually opened the door and created the space within which the political institutions of the EU and the national leaders had to act and had to thereby move forward in the creation of the recovery fund. So of course we can debate sort of, you know, whether this was a chicken or an egg or a horse or a cart and what came before what, but I think there's, there's little doubt that sort of, you know, this decision was a nudge towards creating what in my view is a more sustainable and more solidaristic EMU. At the same time though, the judgment does store up a lot of problems for the future. And so one problem, for example, is that the judgment said very um, problematic things about um, risk sharing and about mutual debt instruments. So there were parts of the judgment who argued that, well, the reason why the PSPP programme um, didn't trigger the constitutional identity review of the German Constitutional Court is because it didn't actually involve any debt sharing. Right, so the way in which the PSPP was organized was that national bonds were mainly bought via the intermediaries of national central banks. So if there was a default, it would actually be the national central banks who would bear the risk of defaults. So there wasn't any debt sharing. But of course, by making that statement, by saying that the reason why constitutional identity wasn't triggered um, is because there was, wasn't any kind of debt sharing instruments, that suggests that if we create EU programs that do involve debt sharing, that might indeed infringe the constitutional identity of Germany. So I think that's kind of a problem the judgment created that you know, might explode in the future. They also actually said some other things. So they said, for example, that one of the important things about the PSPP judgment was that it was based on the capital key of national contributions to the European Central Bank. 
that this was an objective criteria that meant that Article 123 of the treaty wasn't violated. Again, if we look at current programs of the European Central Bank, like the PEPP program, that isn't based on the capital key, or it's got a much more loose attitude towards the capital key. It allows the central bank essentially to prioritize states who are more hard hit by COVID compared to other states. So I think it's a, it's a bit of a contradiction. So the political and economic effects on EMU, I think were positive in the short term, it sort of broke through the political impasse. But like many judgments, of course, and many judgments of the federal constitutional courts, there's something kind of lurking in the background, right? They sort of created this little ticking bomb in the non-operative part of their judgments in relation to things like debt sharing, in relation to Article 123.1, that populists like Beafde might detonate, right? They might raise litigation and then this, lit this litigation might become a focal point for conflict between the two courts in the future. So sort of there's a really interesting part of the judgment about EMU and I think it's going to become more interesting as some of this later litigation arises. Thank you, Mark. Um, Teresa, would you like to follow up on this? Yes, thank you. Um, in fact, it was very interesting uh, to uh, contrast the experiences and the opinions of commentators uh, towards the decision. Even here in Portugal, I'm now currently in Portugal and we're very far away from Karlsruhe and Luxembourg, uh, but um, the positions were very strong and uh, I, I don't particularly share a very critical opinion, but I remember that some of my colleagues, uh, also constitutional lawyers, were outraged at the fact that I, I might see some silver linings uh, 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 underneath the decision. So it really is a decision that um, uh, triggered um, hot passions on people, uh, both uh, critiques and uh, appraisals. And uh, what, what did actually the Federal Constitutional Court do? So we have a very, very unconventional monetary policy. And what the court do, uh, the court took away the last word from the ECJ, but in my opinion, he didn't take the last word back to himself. So uh, still with regards to ultra-virus review, the topic was not closed within the judicial realm. And I think that's the, the, the most um, constructive side to this decision is that it allowed as other uh, uh, constitutional courts decisions, which have been also problematic from the perspective of MU, uh, such as the austerity case law by the Portuguese constitutional court that I have already mentioned, these decisions enhance politicization in fields which are highly technocratic, which have been depoliticized uh, also by the will of political players that, as Mark uh, so well uh, show, uh, showed, uh, tried to hide uh, behind uh, ECB and behind technocratic or, uh, uh, bodies. And uh, the fact is that these decisions force uh, the political actors to face their responsibilities, namely their responsibilities towards the implementation of the integration program. And uh, this, in my opinion, uh, has um, a very positive side uh, to it, uh, just to be sure, I don't think that the final word on monetary policy and on unconventional monetary policies should belong to a court. 
So I would, I think that if this decision or a similar decision in the future that doesn't uh, take the weak remedy that I think the FCC applied in this situation, which which was to combine a strong and substantive uh, review of the ECJ's decision with a weak remedy uh, by uh, um, suspending and deferring the effects of the unconstitutionality to a later moment and allowing uh, by a coordinated action of the ECB and of the federal government and of the, the Bundes uh, of the federal parliament to um, suppress the deficiencies that it found. Um, but if it had not done so, if it had retained the final word of a, a, a very controversial and very technical issue, then I would think it would be problematic because it would uh, close within the judicial realm it's still the uh, non-democratically accountable realm, the, um, the topic. And um, that, I think, would, would be uh, very questionable. I'm not sure that in the future the uh, Federal Constitutional Court would not be tempted to do so. And who knows, perhaps with the pandemic um, purchase program, let's hope not. But... Um, for the time being, in, under this framework, I think this was a very uh, positive ruling for the Economic and Monetary Union. Thank you, Teresa. Franz, what do you think about the judgment in terms of the future of the EMU? Well, I think um, in terms of you know taking this, picking this case uh, with the EMU context uh, role of the central bank, it was probably the worst case they could pick. Because this is something that has real life consequences. This is not really some kind of glass spiel. Um, although for us academics, it's obviously fascinating to reflect on this. And again, I'm, I've been doing this for the last 20 years or so, writing on ultra vires. I make a living out of it. But <laughs> still, I think it's really this, this is really serious business. Don't mess with the markets. And if they really wanted to make a point, and actually, did they really want to make a point concerning the ECB? Couldn't it be that the point was rather addressed to the ECJ and the ECJ is the actual target and they should have picked another case if they really needed to make that point. There's this Egenberger case out there. This is about, uh, you know, a, a church-related um, uh, labor law and uh, it's still pending and it's also a very important subject, obviously, but it's not the dimension of this monetary union where, you know, from the outside, the markets, they look at this, they think, wow, there's something bizarre going on and they will react. And this is just potentially catastrophic. Now, of course, you can say, well, actually, didn't much happening. There, there wasn't much happening afterwards. There, there has not, not been this catastrophic consequences. Well, the case is not over yet. After all, there's still the kind of um, executive uh, um, uh, aspect, how to execute the judgment, the Vollstreckungsanordnung is still pending. Um, so we don't have had the, 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 the final word on this. And there's the PPP program as well. Um, and again, I think that it's also due to the overly critical reactions that maybe this the, the devastating potential of this decision can be contained. And that's part also of my, what I see as my responsibility as an academic to clearly say that to, to what extent I find this uh, catastrophic to help to contain the, 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 point, the damaging effects of this. Now, you know, a political response and all that uh, as, as some kind of, of benefit uh, from, from, from this decision, 
wasn't it all about you know staying out of uh, ecb uh, action from a political uh, decision wasn't it all about independence and it was a german idea that germans wanted to have that and the irony is that even in, in the german system the Bundesbank um, has never been scrutinized by a court. There's never been a similar, uh, you know, uh, attempt uh, to put some kind of legal framework around the independence of the Bundesbank. And from that perspective, I would argue the fact that the ECJ started to um, impose legal restrictions on the ECJ already in cases way back in a couple of years ago, it, it was about uh, uh, the question whether Olaf would apply uh, the fraud unit, you know, whether it would apply to the ECB. And they said, you're not outside the law. And, and that was already much more than the Bundesbank ever had. And now, uh, you, you know, this, this idea to, to, to mingle uh, the lawyers who come in there. It's, it's something I already felt when I, I was a part of the first Euro case, the case relating, uh, related to the, the aid given to Greece and the EFSF, predecessor to the ESM. And I had this strong feeling at the time that, you know, after all, we are in a crisis mode here and nobody can really claim that he or she knows what the right answer is. And if I look at what economic science, you know, the, 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 the professors that uh, were in, in the court hearing, um, I, I don't really have the feeling that there is some kind of unanim unanimous, uh, uh, you know, perspective from the perspective of, of economic science. So nobody really knows what the, the, the right way out of the crisis is. And that, that's a clear-cut case of judicial self-restraint. You know, courts have to, to keep out of this. It's, it's so obvious to me. And uh, from that perspective, I, I again, I, I think it's really um, a devastating judgment for the European Monetary Union. Um, there is another way. So if you look at the second part of the PSP, PSP, PSPP judgment, with, which is about uh, the argument of monetary of um, financing of states, uh, or where they said, no, that's not the case. This is not monetary financing of the state. Uh, and there you can see how kind of ECJ and German Constitution Court kind of interact and develop um, some kind of legal framework in this kind of, of, of dialogue. And, and that's the right way. But just to say, you know, drop the bomb um, and, and just say it's either our way or the highway, I, I just think it's inconceivable. Thank you very much. Um, Franz, for that assessment, um, I think we move, have to move relatively quickly to the next question um, and perhaps also cut the answers a bit shorter um, because we are running out of time if we want to take the questions from the audience. Um, and the last question is about um, the role of the principle of proportionality in this case, but also in the European Union. So the German court has been very much criticized for how it um, employed the principle of proportionality in this particular case. So I think my question to you would be, do you think there is a need to have an ex EU exclusive meaning to the principle of proportionality? Should we have one def definition that is to be employed by all courts in the EU when it comes to proportionality in EU law? Um, and perhaps, yes, Franz, I think. Okay, thanks. Well, it's true that proportionality is 
some kind of a German legal export. Um, it's something that uh, the Germans, uh, you know, it, it's, it stems from actually police law, and then it was imported into general constitutional law. And then now we exported that to the rest of the world, and it looks like a big success. But you know what's easily overlooked here, and also in the debate of this PSPP judgment outside Germany, in Germany, there is a debate about the inbuilt deficiencies of proportionality as a legal tool. You know, what is proportionality all about? It's, a, it, it's an attempt to rationalize balancing, to rationalize preferences. We disassemble an issue into very small pieces, suitability, necessity, and then again, balancing. But the actual balancing remains some kind of black box. It's a statement on preferences, and that's not necessarily rational. I, I, I will always remember my old constitutional law teacher when I was a um, a second year student in Bonn, it was Bernhard Schling, who is better known as an author of the reader, etc. And Schling always used to say, you know, proportionality, if you don't throw that out in the suitability test, the rest is a black box. It's just something, you know, where preferences come in. It's not really something that you can call really rational. Now, why should the interest of the German Kleinsparer, you know, the guy who has his savings account and he's just very unhappy about, you know, not much, you know, developing out of this, trump, no pun intended, trump the interest of the Greek or the Spanish middle class who struggle to maintain their economic existence. I mean, this is again, preferences, this is something you can do this way or that way. And I believe that we see in the COVID situation that proportionality, I talk about the domestic debate here in Germany about the proportionality of the COVID measures. And there we see that proportionality is less rational than one may think, uh, even at the necessity level. That's at least the lesson from the COVID um, legal debate. Now, proportionality is in the treaties but it has a particular spin in EU law. The German approach initially, it's about, it, it has its roots in individual freedom. It's about fundamental rights. And in, in, the, in the EU context, it's rather something institutional. It's, it's, it's something about powers and competences, exercise of powers. And that's already quite alien, actually. That's not really the way we, we framed this in our German constitutional context. Now, I think it's dangerous to push this even further. If you take, if you do what the German Constitutional Court did with ECB action, if you take this to state aid, to competition control, it becomes highly problematic. Then you can really wave a lot of the European legal order goodbye. Thanks. Thank, oh, thank you. And Mark, would you like to go next? Yeah, thanks. Um, well, I think, I think a lot of the controversy in France already alluded to that, as did Andrew in his comments, um, has been about sort of the nationalised way that the Federal Constitutional Court sort of sees the proportionality principle. And I think sort of I can really understand that. So if, if the Court of Justice, for example, is reviewing the act of an EU institution, um, you know, an act that's being conducted on, the, on, the part of, on behalf of all Europeans, then that has to be done based on a European standard, right? There has to be some kind of common standards that is then applied when conducting that sort of review. And um, so I think sort of there's a legitimate critique in saying, you know, when the Federal Constitutional Court creates a third step in proportionality uh, balancing, stricto sensu balancing, you know, that's really a problem if that's not thoroughly embedded in EU law. But at the same time, I do want to defend a little bit, and here maybe this is a point of difference, and um, the value of proportionality 
in general in this policy field, so in the policy field of EMU and in relation to ECB activity in particular. And it relates a little bit to what Francis already said, which is, well, we have to go back to what proportionality is ultimately for, you know, what constitutional role is it playing? And indeed, I think it's playing a role in sort of improving the rationality of policymaking, ensuring that policymaking is balanced, and also ensuring that sort of arbitrary policymaking is avoided. So there's limits, essentially, on what a particular um, decision maker can do. Now, there are a lot of other ways to achieve that goal. So, for example, when you have scrutiny by parliamentary committees, that's one of the ways in which we achieve these goals. When you have proper uh, consultation processes, that is one of the ways in which you achieve these sorts of purposes. But of course, the difficulty when we're dealing with the European Central Bank is that we're dealing with an institution who's making extremely far-reaching policy decisions. It's making them extremely rapidly with vast distributive um, consequences. And it doesn't have any of these types of political scrutiny. It doesn't have um, the other ways in which we achieve the normative goals of proportionality in normal political systems. So I absolutely agree when you say, well, courts are not really the actors who can do this balancing. Right, sort of they're not really the ones who can properly weigh these different distributive interests. Of course, that's absolutely true. But the problem with the ECB case is that courts have only game in time. Right? There is no there is no alternative, there is no other way of achieving this sort of proper form of accountability, of ensuring non-arbitrariness, of ensuring some kind of rationality in policymaking, or at least we can observe, and that's what we do in Leviathan, so we observe lots of failures in the way in which accountability mechanisms surrounding the ECB work. So I think sort of, to put it very briefly, sort of that would be my argument that sort of, you know, there's lots of problems with the way that the German Constitutional Court opera operationalizes the proportionality principle. It does it in a far too nationalized way, but there is a value actually in applying proportionality analysis to the European Central Bank. The ideal of course is that ECB does this itself. And I think sort of my hope is that the judgment prompts the ECB to do more of that, to incorporate proportionality balancing in its decision making. Um, but ultimately, if the ECB doesn't do this, if it doesn't explore seriously other avenues of accountability, courts are one of the actors that can do that in the place of other institutions. And for time reasons, I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you, Mark. Theresa, maybe very briefly, if that is correct. Yes, very briefly. So I agree in principle with both uh, uh, to end this uh, in a conciliatory mode. So in principle, I don't have any objection to what Franz mentioned about um, the issues of proportionality as a legal tool and um, Schling's critique. Indeed, when we think about the third test, the third test, it really is a black box. Um, but in, in, in this particular field uh, of venue, like Mark was saying, first it is enshrined in the treaties. So um, there's always the question of um, begging for consistency. And I think that's the, the most important point uh, in this regard from the uh, decision of the Federal Constitutional Court. It was very clear in highlighting some inconsistencies in the case law of the ECJ. And um, so to, to, to force the ECJ to have a more uh, uh, coherent and consistent approach uh, in the employment of this tool, uh, um, it, it is um, 
a good effect, in my opinion. And the problem is that in this regard, as Mark was saying, if you don't resort to this kind of legal tools, there is no other way to um, get accountability from these executive dominated actions that really require checks and balances that are not at the reach of the normal democratic process for all the reasons that we are um, very well aware of. Thank you very much um, to, to all four of you for... Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herdy-school.org.